Hi, this is Sean Cassidy, and you are listening to the Pop Culture Preservation Society with Kristen and Carolyn and Michelle and Sean Cassidy, which is not one word, but they say it like one word. <laughs> My father, who was a professor at the Yale School of Drama, had been Meryl Streep's teacher at Yale, and I grew up knowing Meryl. She would come to parties, and I loved her, and I thought she was beautiful. And this was the first movie that I'd seen her in. I, I hadn't seen her actually mm. perform uh, in a movie before. Dustin Hoffman I immediately fell in love with. He's a little sexy. He is a short, yeah. sexy guy in this movie. Yeah, he is. It's sexy. It's the jeans. Oh, the it's jeans? The jeans. Oh, the I agree. I was yes. thinking about the yes. jeans. Hello, world. is a song that we're singing. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation whose first pet was a pet rock. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we'll continue to save the Gen X divorce movie Kramer vs. Kramer with Priscilla Gilman, the woman who felt so much connection to this movie that she actually included it in her memoir, The Critic's Daughter. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. Last week, we dissected the movie Kramer vs. Kramer and concluded that now, unintentionally and in retrospect, this movie really is speaking directly to the children of the Gen X era because it was our parents who started divorcing en masse after the creation of no-fault divorce in the 1970s. As I said last week, it is the reason we are the latchkey generation. And we have a guest who's going to tell us why. Priscilla Gilman is the author of The Critic's Daughter, a memoir about her relationship with her father, who was a very famous drama critic named Richard Gilman. But part of what makes her story compelling is that there is a before and after element to the story, before her parents' divorce and after. And that's where I realized that this is the story of all of us, all of us from Generation X. Because even if your parents weren't divorced, your friends' parents were the houses where you went to play, those people might have been divorced. We were all affected by the wave of divorces that started in the 1970s. I really, really could relate to the critic's daughter and Priscilla's story. Not at all because my childhood was anywhere near <laughs> as a, like just out there as hers. Oh my goodness, you guys, the, the name dropping is insane. Lots of famous um, people in her house. Oh, Let's so just put great. it that way. It's yeah. so great. Mm -hmm. The experiences she had, the story she lived is just tremendous. But boy, could I relate to the weight of what she carried and the responsibility mm -hmm. she felt to making one parent happy. And I guarantee you, listeners, if you're a child of divorce, um, you might have not grown up on the Upper West Side and went to private school or had famous literary agents or, you know, famous. I mean, my goodness, her dad, um, you know, Meryl Streep was one of his drama students at Yale. So we might not have had those experiences, but oh, wow, is her story relatable to all of us who had the emotional um, feelings and, and weight that she carried. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll go so far as to say, um, you know, divorce didn't affect me uh, directly and really none of my friends either. Um, but Priscilla's- Catholic school. 
what? Yeah. Catholic school. Yeah. And it's might be a little significant. Catholicism significant. Uh, yeah. embedded in, in some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was always the fear, though, because it was sure. so much in our culture and, mm-hmm. you know, movies and books and stuff. I'm starting to notice it a lot more. Okay. So there's always that threat in the back of your head, mm-hmm. like, oh, my gosh, what if, what if, like when you hear your parents argue, are they going to get a divorce? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's also an element in Priscilla's story that I completely resonated with. Priscilla's relationship with her dad and the caretaking she feels for him, like having to kind of make him happy. There's almost a maternal kind of aspect to her relationship with him that she articulates so well. And I was like, bingo. She talks about um, learning sports and watching sports with her dad. She wanted to make him happy. He didn't have the son to watch these things with, according to her. Well, I don't want to say that because he does have a son. But she she wanted to watch the sports and be that person for her dad who he could enjoy these things with that he loves so much. And oh my gosh, word for word, verbatim, that could have been me. I've probably shared that with um, with our listeners before, but I I remember in my head as a little little kid saying, Carolyn, you're you gotta be the son that dad, your dad didn't have. You've got to go fishing. You've got to memorize all the NFL teams. You have to know (laughs) what division they're in. You you just have to. It was an it was just a given. And to see someone else or to read someone else had that same experience, regardless of the divorce piece, I felt so seen. I cannot even tell you. So uh, the book, you don't have to have experienced divorce or um, anything like that to have this book resonate with you on so, so many levels. The yes. pop culture yeah. yes. references mm-hmm. right there in and of itself is such a big right. one. For sure. And for me, my parents were married, but virtually all of my friends, I mean, almost all of them just lived with their moms. I mean, and I was public school, working working class area. So I think it really makes a difference where you came from and what your community was and how much divorce was happening because of that. So I mm-hmm. was surrounded by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be one reason that Kramer versus Kramer was so interesting to me. Well, and I think um, I could speak for hours about the fun pop culture mentions that are so relatable in The Critic's Daughter. But what I took away from this book is how similar my experience was to Priscilla's. And let me clarify, our childhoods were wildly different, but we both carried so much weight as children. Weight of pleasing one parent, making sure one was okay, worrying constantly if they were happy in life with us, and feeling like it was our responsibility to make sure they were. I found myself gasping out loud and sometimes tearing up when reading certain passages in The Critic's Daughter. It hit hard. And so for those of you listening that um, come from divorced homes, um, regardless of if you've had a childhood anywhere near similar to Priscilla's or not, I think you'll probably feel the same. Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. And the reason that Priscilla is here today, outside of the the, the umbrella of divorce, is that she in this book, has a lot to say about her childhood fascination with Kramer versus Kramer. Please enjoy this interview with Priscilla Gilman. Joining us today is writer Priscilla Gilman. Priscilla writes about literature, parenting, autism, and education, and her first book, The Anti-Romantic Child, which is about her parenting journey with her neurodiverse child, won tons of awards and was selected as one of the best books of 2011 by the Chicago Tribune. And her newest book, The Critic's Daughter, comes out in paperback tomorrow. She's a longtime member of the Pop Culture Preservation Society, and we are so excited to finally meet you in person, like quote-unquote person, on Zoom. Priscilla, thank you so much for joining us today. Kristen, I am 
bursting with happiness right now. This is like a dream come true to be with you all. I'm serious. Like, this is amazing. Wow. Priscilla is one of us. There is no doubt she is one of us, and she's one of all of you. That's why she's here today. So the three of us just had a great discussion of your book, The Critic's Daughter. And the reason that you're here today is because in its pages, you note your childhood fascination with the movie Kramer versus Kramer. And that reference, that, I mean, you just drop it in very subtly, right? But that reference in your book is the reason that we decided to dedicate an entire episode to Kramer versus Kramer. Because one, me too. I mean, how weird that we children felt so strongly about this very adult movie. And two, I think the reason that's notable is because of what was happening to we children or us children. I cannot get the grammar correct on that one. I'm not even sure I have PhD in English, so whatever we want to go with. I don't know. I'll I'll say both. We children, us children, in 1979 and 1980. And so let's start right there. Tell us about your fascination as a child with this movie and why you included that information in your book. It was so cathartic to write about it, Kristen, I have to say, because it has haunted me for so many years. I think it was 1981 or 1982 that I first saw it, and I saw it on HBO a weekend afternoon. I'm like, what great movies on HBO? And it was on repeat. So I watched it from about a third of the way in, and then I just watched it probably Mm -hmm. like five or ten times over the next two weeks. I was obsessed with it. And I think in part because it was a New York City movie, right? It's set in New Mm -hmm. York City in the Mm -hmm. 70s. I was born in 1970, grew up on the Upper West Side, going to Central Park. There are all those scenes in the park, walking in in the playgrounds of New York City, in the apartment buildings, that whole sort of world, number one. Number two, um, my father, who was a professor at the Yale School of Drama, had been Meryl Streep's teacher at Yale. And I grew up knowing Meryl. She would come to parties and I loved her and I thought she was beautiful. And this was the first movie that I'd seen her in. I I hadn't seen her actually Mm. perform uh, in a movie before. Dustin Hoffman, I immediately fell in love with. He's a little sexy. He is a short, sexy guy in this movie. Yeah, he is. I had to look that up. It's the Mm -hmm. jeans. Oh, the jeans? jeans. I agree. I was thinking about those jeans. Mm -hmm. The the cut of the denim that Dustin Hoffman was wearing. Kristen, we need to find out what it was and recommend it to the men in our lives. Well, it was (laughs) kind of high-waisted. I noticed. And it kind of cut. Yeah, and it kind of had the front pockets. Like, but, it's but kind it's of the style flared. that's today. Yeah. Slightly, slightly flared. flared. Mm-hmm. And the blazers with the jeans and the sweaters yes. and the swagger oh, yes. combined with the tenderness. Yeah. It was that mm-hmm. stew yes. of, like, yes. he had confidence, but yet he was vulnerable and he was loving. and he, I mean, it was just incredible. But the most fundamental, yeah. we might say primal reason why I responded to this movie is that my parents had split up in the fall of 1980. And this was the first, I would say, piece of art that I had encountered or experienced that described the dissolution of a family and a bitter dissolution at that, because my parents Mm -hmm. had an extremely acrimonious separation slash divorce. It took them like eight years to get divorced. And so it resonated with you, like somebody was telling your story on the screen and that made you feel sick. Yes. And mm-hmm. you know, it's funny, Kristen, because mm-hmm. in the movie, they have only one child. It's a boy, right? I have a sister mm-hmm. and an older brother from my father's first marriage. And my mother didn't walk out. In fact, it was my father who 
disappeared from my everyday life because my mother ended the marriage. Mm -hmm. We stayed with my mother and my father was bouncing around from apartment to apartment in these sublets. And I didn't really see my father very much um, for the first couple of years. But I think the other, the thing that resonated for me is that my father was an incredibly passionate, involved, engaging parent. And so over the course of the movie, Dustin Hoffman evolves into what my father always oh, yeah. had been, right? He learns yeah. how yeah. to be uh, an involved <clears throat> yeah. parent. He learns – because in the beginning of the movie – I mean, I, I think I write about this in my book. I say, like, the character couldn't be farther from my father. Like, my father was a drama critic. He was a writer. He yeah. taught at Yale. He was a, And Dustin Hoffman is, like, this advertising guy, and he's talking about his Burberry coat. He has all this swagger, and he wants to get the accounts. He's all about making money. Um, but there was something, the vulnerability in him, the feeling of being blindsided by the wife saying, it's done, I'm out, yeah. I'm leaving. Yeah. Um, I had experienced mm-hmm. my father's devastation when my mother, mm-hmm. seemingly out of the blue, ended their marriage. And the sort of... That's how it feels yeah, to children. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I... Yeah. I'm thinking, too, that similar to, to me as a child watching this movie and now as an adult reading your book, that maybe you also related to Billy in a way. So for me, I was relating to Billy as a child and then to you, just when I recently read your book, as having to shoulder, as coming from a broken home, having to shoulder the weight of all the emotions and the responsibility you feel towards one parent yes. or another. And you can see that in Billy, that little oh, actor. that you little know, Justin Henry is so amazing. In Justin Henry, right? Incredible right, yeah. performance. It's, inc- it's so, He's not acting. It's like he's not yeah. acting. He's Ugh. He is actually experiencing all of those yeah. things. It's stunning. So, Priscilla, I'm just wondering, so like <clears throat> even though Kramer versus Kramer – the the situation is a little bit it's the same but it's also a little bit different mm-hmm. for you maybe you're you're relating though to all the emotions billy's carrying yes um because for i know for me that's what it was absolutely mm-hmm. and that feeling of being torn between two parents who are acrimonious and quote unquote hate each other for a while although in kramer versus kramer they manage by the end uh, that last scene, I am sobbing in that last scene yeah. where there's that tender <laughs> yeah. moment where he compl- mm-hmm. she recognizes the value of his parenting and she validates him as a parent yeah. and he affirms her and they have this kind of beautiful exchange in that last scene. And I think that's what I was craving and what I didn't get and yeah. what I didn't experience. Yeah. <gasps> well, and I also I'm wonder you. if you... Um, no matter how loving and there for you your father was, when you're in this situation, there's always an elusive parent. You're always needing, you're always wanting more. You don't have that person with you all the time. And I just wonder if that is something that even, even with a parent who he really wanted to be with you, but my God, it was hard for you to get together with him. It was hard for you to find a rhythm, to find, um, what is the word I'm looking for? To have a custody arrangement where you felt like you got enough of your dad. Oh my God. And I didn't get enough of my dad. You just described my childhood. She just described my childhood. I mean, Priscilla, we could talk for hours about the similar similarities of our situations, but I, I think, I think that 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 has to be something that you felt watching the movie too. Absolutely. And like what yes, you just said. Yes, yeah. I did. Absolutely. And I think also the movie, the movie is so 
Brilliant. Um, I watched it again with my younger son, actually, when I was working on it. And I took like 20 pages of notes and then distilled it down to the four pages that appear in the book. And in my book, I have um, something that I ended up being called 40 Characters in Search of My Father. And it starts with like the king from the king and I, and Ted Kramer is one of the main ones. And I do this extended riff on my father as Ted Kramer and sort of wanting, in in a way, it was very ahead of its time, this movie, because it was suggesting, it was very of its time in the sense that it captured the zeitgeist where women were finally feeling empowered to say, you know what, I'm not happy and fulfilled in this marriage. And um, I need to find myself, right? And Meryl Streep, she's very unhappy. She walks out. She comes back. Um, and that fathers could parent as effectively and lovingly as mothers. And that I, that I mm-hmm. really responded to because I had always felt like, mm-hmm. why am I not seeing my father enough? My father couldn't afford a place that we could sleep over in. And my parents were fighting over money. And it was very bitter. But I think the other thing about Billy... He was a little bit more outspoken than I was. And he I was. admired him for that. Like when things weren't going well, he would sort of call it out. He's like, no, that's not the way to do the French toast. You know, like, like he was sort of, you know, uh, he was blunt and he was straightforward in a way that I didn't feel that I could be because I was so invested in protecting both of my parents emotionally yeah. and taking care of them yeah. and being that kind of parentified child that was watching out for them. But I did really appreciate, um, you know, his bedroom in the movie. I want a bedroom oh, like I that. I wanted that bedroom. Oh my gosh, yes. you all. The clouds, the clouds on the walls. On the walls. Oh, the clouds. And it sort of mm-hmm. captures what all, and you know, we're all parents and what we want for our children and what our parents wanted for us, which is that our children can exist in this protected, beautiful, almost ethereal bubble of romanticism, right? In that yeah. safe space of their bedroom and how separation and divorce shatters that. Right. But how you're continually trying to bring your child back Mm -hmm. into that safe and protected space. And so those scenes where he's crying in the bed. But then Dustin Hoffman, remember, he finds the picture and he Mm -hmm. and he puts it Mm -hmm. out of the mother. And that's the picture of Meryl Streep. What what was that? Like, I was like, I have no experience with something like one of my parents would have Michelle, I say that in my book. I'm like, neither of my parents would ever be like, Oh, look, let's celebrate the other parent and put the picture out. And I was so jealous of that. No. Yeah. yeah, My mom would have been like, if you're going to have a framed picture of daddy, then we're going to make sure you have like, you wait, why do you have a framed picture of your father and not of me? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. To this day, actually. To this day. (laughs) Well, let's talk about divorce just a little bit during this time period because other than your own experience, which was really heavy emotionally, we learned from Mm -hmm. your book. What did you know about divorce statistics in this time period? Because it seems that every other Gen Xer comes from a broken home. It does. Literally. And it's funny because I didn't, my friends from school, I went to an all girls school um, on the East side called Brearley. Very few of my friends had divorced parents. Although one of my close friends' parents had married each other after having split from previous yeah. spouses. Wow. But I do talk in the book about this other family um, that we were close friends with, that we spent some summers with, and they had split up a couple of years before, and they had a son. So one son. I, I think I also thought about them when I was watching the movie, because my friend Sebastian was like the mm-hmm. Billy. Um, and I did identify with oh, yeah. that. Yeah. And I remember thinking that my mother was sort of 
ruminative after hearing about the split. I was like, this is a little weird. But my parents would always say to us when they fought, we will never, ever, ever get divorced. And they were really, and that was part of the feeling of betrayal that I was like, we asked you. And obviously, if we were asking them, Michelle, we must have been aware that there were increasing yeah. numbers mm-hmm. of people splitting up in our circle. Because yeah. why were we asking? Yeah, them? that was worrisome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, But I didn't yeah. know anything about the statistics. And then as I went through, because it was 1980 that they announced it, 1981 that my father moved out. I was in fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, as I moved into middle and high school, a lot of my friends' parents started splitting up. So it, it felt like it was okay. gaining yeah. steam and like gaining momentum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, isn't that about the time too, you guys, that marriage encounter was a really big thing? Yes. In the, in the early Catholic 80s. Church. Remember mm-hmm. that? Marriage yes. encounter. My friend's parents that went was, to oh, oh, did your my parents, parents go? My yeah. Parents. And they had like the little banner Wait, on the Carolyn, wall. Wait, Carolyn, I do not encounter. know what this is. Tell me, marriage encounter. Oh my we God. There were bumper York. stickers. We didn't talk about yeah. this in New York City. <laughs> there were there were marriage encounter bumper stickers that were but like advertising. Like, yeah. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Carolyn, why don't you Yeah, my fill parents fill would go on these marriage retreats. It was very, I mean, we grew up very Catholic. So um, divorce was kind of not something that I was very familiar with. Even my friends, you know, that was yes. something that you wouldn't do. Although I shared with Kristen and Michelle, I think the other day, my mom recently had told my daughter and myself that if she wasn't Catholic, my parents weren't Catholic, she probably would have divorced my dad, which let me tell you, hearing that as a, um, and I think there would be a lot that would go into that and we'd have to kind of, you know, um, parse that out a bit. But that being said, um, this religious kind of aspect of we're going to help keep your marriage strong, maybe because of all these people that are starting to get divorced yeah. in the oh, 70s. that and, makes a lot um, of sense, so Carolyn. Yeah. We're going to have mm-hmm. this kind of church-based um, based counseling kind of thing. And, um, and they would go on marriage retreats. Wow. And yeah, S- but they would also, you know, like to your point of arguing and being in a place where We'd say, are, are you ever going to, you know, get a divorce? And they'd be, no, we're going to be together forever. And, um, but yet always that worry in the back oh, of your yes. head that, mm-hmm. so I can't imagine what that was like for you when they did after promising you over and over again that that would not happen. That's a punch it in the really face. It really yeah. was. And oh, I think, um, yeah. you know, I was, th- I was thinking one thing I didn't say is that my father had been married before. So he had been divorced and mm-hmm. I had this half brother. Mm-hmm from my father's first marriage, but both of my sets of grandparents were religious, conservative religious Jews, conservative religious Christians. There was no divorce on either side of the family. My -hmm. father was kind Mm -hmm. of almost a black sheep because he had gotten divorced from his first wife. And I felt that to dissolve a second marriage would destroy him. Like I always felt Mm -hmm. from early childhood, Mm -hmm. my mother, my grandparents got along. It was crazy. Like the Midwestern grandparents went fishing with the Jewish Russian Jews. Um, They all got along great. And it was such an incredible ecosystem that we, it functioned so well until until it didn't. And I say in the book that the night that I heard them talking in the kitchen, when I realized that something was really off. I'm writing in my Holly Hobby Journal. It really was. Oh, God. My Holly Hobby Journal. And I'm writing, Sad. please don't let them get divorced. Please, I'll do anything. If they don't split up, I'll do anything. Please, please, please. Oh, my God. And I just knew. And then my mother said, um, you know, it's a trial separation. 
And I remember knowing this is not a separation. This is not a trial. This is not an attempt. This is not an effort. This is not an experiment. I could, I looked at her face and I was like, she is out. This is done. And that I think resonated when I saw Kramer versus Kramer, just how determined Meryl Streep is to get out. And there was no pulling her back, no matter how charming and sexy to us Dustin Hoffman was in those jeans. He -hmm. can't get her back. Yeah, no, that's so true that you must have seen yourself so much and your family situation in that movie. Yes. Mm I didn't. I mean, I have zero experience with an intact family. My parents got divorced when I was a baby, so it was probably around 1970. I was born in 1969, so I think I was about one. Mm. Um, I get a different story a lot. So, but, (laughs) but um, all I know is a broken home, and by broken, I mean shattered. And I've lived my whole life as the product of divorce, and I've had to reconcile and overcome a tremendous amount of emotional roadblocks. And I've had, you know years of therapy where basically this is what we talk about every time. So we go back to the seventies, the early eighties, where you say, I I didn't know, or I knew some kids who were getting divorced. I know nothing but it. I just craved an intact family. Um, And it's probably the reason I threw myself into making sure my own family, you know, the one that I created has, you know, is so successful and intact and wonderful and loving. Um, that only took like, I don't know what you guys probably two years of therapy. For that <laughs> right. <organization>, but, uh, <laughs> it's a lot. All I can do is be sad about it. But yeah, so, so you see this little boy in the movie with the weight of being pulled and not knowing. Yeah. And even though the situation was different from mine, because I don't remember anybody telling me we're right. getting divorced. Um, it's, it's, He's who I attach to in Kramer versus yeah. Kramer. It he's, was Billy. He's and your, he's probably the he's reason I watched it over yes. and over again. Yeah. Yes. I think I attached to him and I was able to attach to the Meryl Streep character probably better because mm-hmm. I knew her and I could see in her face. She did a fantastic yes. job where she's not just a villain. She's like, you can see no. the pent up frustration, the sadness. You can see how the Dustin Hoffman character has been irritating to her, has been not hearing her, has been not listening. Dismissive. dismissive. Exactly. Yes. And the other thing that I really did appreciate about the movie and that I craved in my own life, because Michelle, as you, uh, you know, wow, at your story, I was like te- getting teary while you were talking. Um, we both had a really, really traumatic loss when we were 10. And, you know, I spent the rest of my father's life. My father was diagnosed with terminal cancer when I was 27. And he died nine years later, but he was sick pretty much from when I was 21, 22. He Mm -hmm. had a heart attack when I was 22. My mother never reconciled to him, was never positive about him, never said a good Mm -hmm. word about him. Um, My Mm -hmm. father remarried and got it right the third time and had a beautiful marriage, which was inspiring to me. And my father never said a bad word about my mother, which is interesting to me. Wow. I don't remember my father saying a bad word about my mother either. However, that could very well be... I've made, I only saw him twice a year, but that could be something that I changed in my mind. Right, right. Until, and my mother always said bad things about my father until he died. And then she said nice things about him. And I still to this day have to work through that in therapy because it's like, now? Michelle, so, oh oh my God, Michelle, because remember the moment in my book where I say, I'm working at my mother's literary agency when my father dies. And we're getting calls at the agency from family friends who knew both my mom and me. Mm-hmm. And I hear my mom saying nice things about my father. And I heard her saying these very empathetic things. And I was like, why couldn't you have shown this empathy when he was alive? 
Um, he mm-hmm. died probably feeling that mm-hmm. you didn't love him or appreciate him. And, but, but mm-hmm. I think part of the process of writing the book and like going back and talking to my sister, my brother and talking to my mom, my mom finally gave me that affirmation of my father's essential worth mm-hmm. that all of us children of divorce crave. And no matter, my father was not a terrible husband, but you know, no matter how terrible someone is in a relationship, you have to be able to separate out their role as a parent. And if they're a good parent, value yeah. that. And you, that's so interesting. You needed that. You needed your mom to say he was a good yes. man. Like you would think that would be between them, but it is not. Mm-mm. The child needs Mm-mm. to hear that. And I feel like our generation were the guinea pigs when oh, 100%. We were, parents were just starting yep. to to this whole divorce wave was coming and nobody knew how to do it yet. And we are the victims of that. And now people have divorce counselors and there are rules and there are guidelines. There's protocol about you would never disparage the other person because how it will damage your child. We didn't have that. That's it. You've nailed it, Kristen. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. It was like, and and, you know, when my book came out and I was, you know, the New York times reporter came to my house because they, they profiled me and they were like, aren't you furious at your mother? And, can you believe your father said this and that? And, you know, I never really was angry to write the book. I had to get back to those feelings of shock and betrayal and disappointment. Um, but, you know, w- what I always say when people ask me this is there was no language for how to talk to children about divorce. And it was right. also shameful mm-hmm. and it was hushed up. And we also didn't get therapy. Michelle, I wonder you too. Like my sister and I, eventually when we were in college demanded therapy because we said we have (laughs) never been able to process this we were taught let's just move on everything's going to be great and it wasn't great and it was even as I was like having so much fun with pop culture which I talk about a lot in my book and that's one of the reasons (laughs) it's so great you know going to uh, dances and dancing Duran Duran and men at work and enjoying my life um there was this there was this suppressed right at the surface sense of sadness. And I think also, you know, when you're 10 and you all will appreciate this more than most people, it's like my childhood ended when my parents split up because then the next year I'm in sixth grade, I'm in middle school, I'm starting to go to dances with boys. And so all of those watching the Hardy Boys with my father with Sean Cassidy, Sean, we're calling him out here, celebrating you always, um, (laughs) you know, immersing ourselves in children's books and that magical enchanted fairy tale world of childhood that my father presided over and he watched Sesame Street with us and he did all those 70s things with us. You know, it felt like that. And I think it's one of the reasons why my sister and I have always been such nostalgia girls because going back and Mm -hmm. rereading the William Steig books, you know, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble or The Amazing Bone mm-hmm. and Amos and Boris or the E.B. White books or watching, getting the DVDs of Hardy Boys and watching them. It's a way for us to be transported back to that era before right. we had to become grownups mm-hmm. too soon. Oh, yeah. my God. Right. Oh and my God. even though my parents didn't get divorced when I was 10, like I told you, I lost my father yes. when I was 10. Um, and I always say that to people. I used to actually, I think the first time I ever said that to Carolyn and Kristen, I correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, but I think I said my father died when I was 10. And it took me about 30 minutes before I That's realized, what I oh, thought. wait, yeah. he didn't die yeah. when I was 10. Boo. He like, you know, he died when I was 22. Why? It's, it comes out of my mouth because I didn't yeah. even get to say goodbye. Yeah. Like I loved my daddy. And like, so when I say mistakes were made, you know, by adults um, who knew better, 
Um, it's very convenient for me to blame my mother, where my father, and for a lot of different reasons, was to blame as well. He died years ago, and I lost him, so it's way more convenient exactly, to blame my mother. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For that reason, though, um, just... I was so like, I had shame. Um, my dad actually would try to call sometimes and I wouldn't, um, nobody would let me talk to him on the phone. Or then one time when my stepfather, when I was just alone with my stepfather and he said, your dad's on the phone, I was like, no, no, no. Cause I was embarrassed. Cause I was like, daddy must think I'm like, I haven't reached out to him or written him a letter because I know I wasn't supposed to. So like I had shame and embarrassment and I had to grow up really fast in a lot of ways too. And so I so agree with you that that time, the pop culture things, the Gen X things, the books, the movies, my friendship with someone who's still my best friend to this day, um, such an important time for me, fifth and sixth and seventh grade. Um, I want to say something really quick, though, um, just about what you said about the Meryl Streep character and how we can, um, you can see, right? You can, you can see what she was going through. Something we just talked about, um, just a little bit ago uh, when we were talking about the movie, um, I have a really unpopular opinion about that, and it has everything to do with my own experience, mm-hmm. oh. right? Mm-hmm. I am 54, and I still to this day will struggle with people not putting their child first, even though as a 54-year-old adult, I can 100% see that yes. side of it. I am always going to be my 10-year-old self in a situation yeah. like that, and so um it's a it's a great movie for that yes. reason. Yeah. Because there it is layered and you can have great debates and great conversation about that, depending on who you're talking to. Yeah, everybody brings something different mm-hmm. to it. In the end, really, the critic's daughter is very much about just what we said, about being Gen X and that nostalgia. And the reason that Kramer versus Kramer was important to you was because you were part of what we've talked about this whole time, that cultural shift in which parents were divorcing in much bigger numbers. And that really changed the lives of so many of us Gen X kids and turning us into latchkey kids, having to split our lives in two, like both you and Michelle have so um, wonderfully articulated here. And another thing to note is that you include a lot of pop culture references yeah, in the book. Yeah, so much fun. And not just Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> you really you really were anchoring in that particular time period, that particular Gen X era. Can you you've told us a little bit about that already, but can you expand on that a little bit more? Why was that such an important part oh, of Oh, Carolyn, story? It, and it's so interesting as I'm speaking to you all, I'm realizing something that I've never quite articulated to myself before. At the time that this was all happening, all of this fun pop culture stuff, like I talk about going to E.T. with my dad and going to dances and winning albums, right? Um, from I, I think Business as Usual was one of the first albums that I won <laughs> and loving the Go-Go's and, you know, that whole thing. It got me through the struggle and the disorientation and the fear and the anxiety about my parents at the time. And then when I was writing my book... I would have to write a very emotional scene, right, about going to a sleepover in a strange apartment with my father where he had no furniture and he started to cry and he said, I wish I had you girls more. So I would write that scene. I would feel emotionally drained. And then I would say, now it's time to do my 70s and 80s research. And so I would go and research when Annie opened on Broadway and I saw Sarah Jessica Parker and finding videos and listening to the songs from Annie and... So it was almost like the nostalgia was a bomb and a support both Mm -hmm. at the time and in the writing of the book. 
your pop culture yes, therapy. Yes, pop culture therapy. Yes. We yeah. all need yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And we have found that to be the case in our own research and our own personal lives as we, you know, are going through things. But it's like, oh, really? I get to research all the Christmas specials of the 70s? <laughs> Bring it Carolyn, on. Try to be in a bad mood Carolyn, after that. a Rankin Bass rabbit hole is the cure yes. to many ills. <laughs> Isn't it? Uh, it? It really is. It really is. And we but, get to do that. And you also mentioned, I found this very interesting too, and I wondered if this was one reason that all of these pop culture references were in the book, was because your parents were not into pop culture, and they were very limiting, and they didn't approve of certain things. And of course, that just wants it. We want it more, right? We just want it more. Oh my gosh. Okay, Kristen, as soon as my dad had moved out, my sister and I were like, bring on the Brady Bunch. We started watching Love Boat, Magnum (laughs) P.I., Fantasy Island. That's what you Um, It was like... All, I mean, and my mother allowed it because and she got us Atari. She got us HBO. The reason yeah, yeah, I yeah. saw Green River vs. Kramer is because my parents had split up and I was a latchkey kid and I was alone and alone oh, the and irony. able to watch yeah. HBO. Oh, and I also watched Friday the yeah. 13th, the first one. I can tell you, Jason's not the killer. It's his mother in the first one. Yeah. Right? Because I, was, <laughs> I watched it when I was 10. I love the reference. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> listeners, how she's saying, um, you know, then she got to do all the things. Uh, there's a reference where you say you wore a tube top. <laughs> right. You got to wear oh, the scandal. And you're like, Those thank God. God, my dad didn't see me in the tube top, <gasps> something sorry. like that. And I just had to laugh because, right, we can all picture the tube top. Yes. It was kind of stretchy. Michelle yeah. and the oh, guest yeah. jeans with the zippers on the ankles. Yes. 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 And the Florida yes. Vanderbilt jeans with the swan on the yes. butt. Oh, swan. oh that swan. And the perfume, the Gloria oh, Vanderbilt perfume. perfume. Yes. He needed it. Yes. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, listeners, the book is chock full yeah, of it is. Uh, pop culture. The fun, the just the most fun pop culture references. So, with you saying that your dad was really the one who said you can't, you know, watch any of these TV shows and really kept the um, a lot of that out of your life. Why were you allowed to watch that, um, the Hardy Boys? I'm really curious. Why did that make? Thank the cut? you so much for asking. Uh, my father loved the Hardy Boys books. And he, my, my school, this private girls' school on the Upper East Side didn't stock the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew in their library. They were really snooty about it. So my father took us to libraries in Connecticut on the weekends and I read every single Hardy Boys book. And we talked about, you know, what happened at midnight while the clock ticks, (laughs) these incredible titles to these books. And he was like, and then he was like, oh, but this is a little, um, you know, poppy but he loved it. And that music, da, 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 yes. da, 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 Yes, and Carolyn, he thought Sean Cassidy was a great actor. Sean. Oh. Mm-hmm. And he approved wow. of Sean Cassidy as my first crush. Feather oh. in his cap. No. <laughs> Richard Gilman. <laughs> That's awesome. Yes. Wow. Yes. Have you told Sean that? I have. Sean was actually very gratified by that. I bet. Well, that's a a huge compliment. That's huge. Yes. 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 Just one other. It's just another sign that we're all supposed to be together on this screen. We really, really are, everyone. Mm -hmm. I think The Critic's Daughter is uniquely relevant to our listeners because given the statistics, half of our listeners, half would be able to relate to your story in a very personal way. And so I think this would make a really great selection for our next Zoom book club. So would you be willing to come back and do a live virtual book club with our listeners? 
would I be willing? <laughs> I will be there with bells on. And I'll try to dress in my best. I, I did wear like a kind of poncho yeah, sweater cute. for you oh, all today. Oh, it's cute. It's cute. Yeah. This is great. And I think we should do this sooner rather than later. Yeah. You can tell that Priscilla is an absolute gas and you will have a good time at this book club. And so let's do this in the next few weeks. And it it would be great if people watched Kramer versus Kramer first. I think oh, that yeah. would add so much texture oh. to the discussion. So all of you listening, please look Look for details about a book club with Priscilla about the critic's daughter in our weekly newsletter and by following our social media posts. Priscilla, I want to kiss you. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. I want to have a slumber party with you, Priscilla. Can we have a slumber party? Do that. Watch a raunchy comedy like Stripes or Risky Business, something like that. Corkies. Corkies, exactly. And a horror movie. Oh, my God. And a horror movie. Yes, for sure. I'm going to wear tube top. (laughs) Yes. I could never keep a tube top up I don't anymore. Think I could it rolled down so fast. It's around my waist. <laughs> oh my god, this has been oh so god. much fun. Thank you so much. I would love to do it again oh, sometime. We'll have you back. I cannot even tell you how much fun that was. so much to everybody for listening today. This has been some of the heaviest conversation we've had on the Pop Culture Preservation Society, but also some of the most enlightening and validating because we as a group experienced the onset of divorce together. And I hope these conversations over the last two weeks helped you feel seen. And if you'd like to join us for that book club, it'll be taking place the week of March 25th at 7 p.m. Central Time on Zoom. Priscilla Gilman has graciously agreed to join us to answer any questions you might have about her book or her experience, and to just be in the presence of fellow society members. And as you guys just heard, she is lovely and so much fun, and we really hope that you guys will get to to meet her. Um, Our book clubs are always a good time, so we hope you'll join us. Uh, To sign up and to get more information on the exact date, uh, just go to our website at poppreservationists.com. Dot com and click on the events tab, or you can click the link tree link that's in our Instagram bio. Um, or for those of you who are subscribed to our weekly emailed newsletter, the weekly reader, all of this info is in there. And if you're not subscribed, why the heck not? It's really easy. Just go to our website to subscribe as usual. This book club, like all of ours, are free for Patreon members. And if you're not a member, it's only $10 for you to join us that night. So you have a few weeks still to get the book, and you can find The Critic's Daughter wherever you buy your books, including our Amazon storefront, Pop Culture Preservation Society. And you can find a link to our storefront in our link in bio on Instagram, in our weekly reader, and also on our website. And today's episode was brought to you by Jen, Susie, Lydia, Diane, Mike, Erica, Lisa, and Nina. These are just some of our wonderful supporters who support the PCPS with their monthly and one-time donations. A great big, humongous thank you to all of you. And if you'd like to join our team of supporters, visit our website once again at poppreservationists.com. Man, you can find a lot of stuff at our website. Uh Yeah, you sure can. (laughs) You sure can. One-stop shop. In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast, courtesy of the Cast of Three's company, to good times. Two happy days. To Little House on the Prairie. (laughs) Cheers. 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 
the information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you.